I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. I'm Aditya Ramnathan. I'm a researcher in the Geo Strategy Program at Takshashila Institution, and I have with me Manoj Kevalramani, the China dude himself, and Pranav. It's a Thursday, and we want to talk about military innovation. Why does it happen? Can we predict it? Can we control it? And how do you replicate military innovation? I want to start with you, Manoj. Uh, you're reading an interesting book about this topic, specifically military innovation in China. Tell us more about it. Yeah, hi. Uh, so I was reading this book uh, by Thai Mingchuang, and uh, it talks about uh, the book's title is "Forging China's Military Might," and it uh, talks about uh, how science and technology and innovation is building China's military might, and. Uh, In the beginning of the book, uh, the author sort of puts out a framework to understand the concept of military innovation, and also this. I'm I'm using this word military innovation loosely. He uses it slightly differently, and I'll get to that. Um, but broadly, he starts by defining what innovation is, and innovation is about getting a task done in a certain way. Um, and then he tries to explain to us uh, what broadly classifies as military innovation, or defense innovation, or security innovation, and he. breaks it down into three hierarchies three sort of sets of hierarchies uh, the first at the top of it all is strategic innovation which has to deal with uh, strategic thought strategic concepts so the idea that uh, containment the us policy of containment with regard to the soviet union the development of nuclear weapons and therefore the strategy of deterrence uh, and then the strategy of compellence where you compel an adversary by just your sheer force without actually necessarily using force those are sort of strategic thoughts which have evolved and those strategic thoughts have been innovated so that's an innovation in strategic thought as opposed to traditionally looking at battle surprise and those sorts of things um and that's the first level of it where you sort of at a thought level at a strategy level you sort of conceptualize a new framework and that's strategic innovation he then looks at defense innovation that's the second level of the hierarchy which essentially entails uh, innovations in three streams products processes and organizations now you see much more of this as opposed to strategic innovation more commonly because strategic innovation usually comes once in a while given when sort of there are massive structural changes that the world undergoes defense innovation on the other hand happens more regularly more you know it's more commonly seen which is essentially in terms of products you're seeing new new weaponry uh, new ways in which data is collected new way in which you're fighting the adversary those sorts of things new processes relate to how some of those new gadgets these new guns these new ships and new tanks and new jets new radars are being then used and what is the process by which they are being put into action and finally in terms of organization it refers to how some of these technological advancements are optimized by structuring your organizations to use them most effectively so for example in india we've been having this conversation of a chief of defense staff that's an organizational change that we're looking at uh, which would then be required because of certain number of factors 
the other things in say in the case of china you've seen you've seen five new theater commands old military regions go away you're seeing a new balance between how the army the navy uh, and the air force operate with each other in the us you've seen a structural change with the pacific command being rebranded as the indo pacific command so those are sort of organizational changes that you're doing and those are organizational innovations at the last level is military innovation in itself um and that's why i initially had that caution this refers to more sort of operational tactical and probably even technological changes so for example you have the same gun but its capacity has been enhanced by some sort of component adjustment um you've got the same sort of jet but it's got a little bit of a tweak to it and it's become better uh, and those sorts of innovations would refer to as military innovation in that you could also have certain process or organization innovations wherein you know your conventional approach to fight fighting a mountain battle would have been say you know waiting for your enemy holding ground now you might be looking at some a different method to do it so that's tactical at a very sort of theater operational level um and that would be uh, military innovation so he categorizes it in these three different categories and then he talks about how and why innovation happens and why and how such innovation happens and that's the fascinating bit about the book right how what does it take for militaries to innovate um and particularly in today's context given that we're talking about ai and cyber security and the rest of it and how ai could probably be a revolution in military affairs um that's why this holds lots of significance and at least interest to me Okay I'm really struck by how holistic this thinking is it's not purely driven by ideas about changing technology but also about organizations and even uh, maybe social and political conditions yeah the idea of revolution in military affairs as i'm sure a lot of our listeners know is not new and uh, there's actually a very interesting historiographical uh, tradition that we can look back to the way this whole idea of rma started it actually was the fusion of two different strands one was uh, in the 1970s the us military went through a major transformation one was of course simply the use of uh, precision guided munitions 1972 the operation linebacker one over north vietnam was the first to use uh, such precision guided munitions and the soviets took very close note of that but it wasn't just technology mm. uh, the us turned with the end of the vietnam war into an all volunteer force and uh, the its armed forces were reorganized into theaters it's basically the us military as we know it today but it was especially the technological aspect of that that uh, caught the attention of the soviets and there was a marshal nikolai ogorkov who uh, dubbed this a military technical revolution yeah and uh, it was in the 80s and the 90s that the americans took note of this and uh, andrew marshall office of net assessment uh, his office uh, coined this term revolution in military affairs mm-hmm. and that uh, term has stuck since and it is fused with something else which seems completely unrelated in 1956 a historian of early modern europe uh, michael roberts uh, wrote a, a paper titled the military revolution and he was referring to the uh, innovations and changes made by maurice of nassau and gustav adolf in the 17th century these were changes in drill these were changes in the way cavalry and infantry coordinated and they also reflected much deeper changes in the whole nature of the state this was really the birth of modern nation states mm. organized professional uh, permanent militaries run by a centralized uh, government and so michael roberts uh, article stirred a great deal of debate and uh, what you had after that you had jeffrey parker you had several other historians writing about uh, 
military revolutions or revolutions in military affairs in other periods. So it finally came down to, you know, they started tracking this from the 14th century right up to the 20th century. These very disruptive changes in military environment. Some historians started uh, using the metaphor of punctuated equilibrium, which is just something they borrowed from evolution. Mm -hmm. You know, you have explosion of life forms in a certain period and then things are fairly stable and there's another explosion. Uh, Of course, uh, RMAs are very different from those because it's actually intelligent designs. It's not more than evolutions. It's multiple intelligent designs interacting with each other in unpredictable ways. But it's an interesting analogy and... uh, I think the great debate since then has been, A, how do you define a military revolution? Yeah. Uh, how far is it just technological? Yeah. Uh, and uh, how do you know if you're in one? Yeah, I mean, that's the tricky bit, right? So even in this book, when he's talking about it, he gives me a bit of a background on uh, different people talking about different kinds of RMAs. And obviously, uh, if you read through it, you realize that nobody really agrees on how many RMAs have taken place and whether currently we are in a place where AI can be classified as that. And so while that definition is an interesting sort of and a very complicated thing to come at, the one thing that we do know is that yes, an RMA will be deeply disruptive. It will have changes across the board, not just uh, from a technology point of view, but also from the point of view of organization, doctrine, uh, training and everything. And the last thing is, it's quite highly likely that revolutions in military affairs won't necessarily increase certainty. They will increase uncertainty. Absolutely. And that will mean that they will create far more instability until perhaps we reach what you were calling a punctuated equilibrium where things tend to seem much calmer and things tend to seem much more stable. Um, but yeah, but that's the fascinating debate according to me. Yeah. You know, one of the military revolutions that historians talk about a lot is the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a period, of course, this is also the time of the Industrial Revolution. But in terms of land warfare, there weren't huge technological changes during that period. Mm. You had greater mass mass manufacture of muskets, you had new types of cannon, cannons. But really, the, the big revolution was nationalism. The French levy on mass, mass conscription in 1793 was the product of nationalism. Yeah. The French invasion of other countries provoked nationalism there. Yeah. And those countries create mass armies as well. Yeah. So you had this complete change in the military environment, which was not necessarily driven by technology. Yeah. We are living in a time, not just of technological change, but social and political change. There yeah. seems to be so much flux. We have no idea what any of it means. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, what impresses me about this is that they're talking about both uh, technology and the yeah. broad, broad institutions and society. Yeah, and I think that's that's the interesting thing that also right. It tells you as to what, uh, not just what goes into innovating uh, in the defense domain, but also what prompts countries to then pursue something like this. While technology might be available, there are many factors that prompt countries, right? So nationalism and that sort of political intent in that some sense could be one thing that causes you to further pursue, further invest. Or like say countries in the past have said, you know, we will eat grass until we get the bomb. Um, So those sorts of things, you know. And can democracies ensure that people eat grass while you still do such things. Um, so it's quite a complicated conversation in terms of what are the factors that go into all of this. Yeah, definitely. There's this one theory of offensive defense balance where it says that, you know, for a country, the amount of resources it must invest in offensive capability so that it can offset a defensive capability uh, is likely higher. Uh, for me, that always reminds me of in the 70th anniversary period, we saw the DF-17 with the hypersonic missile. Now, this must be uh, offensive capability developed because US defenses. Hmm. But there is a lot of speculation that it's not really an innovation as such because 
these missiles at the end of the day will serve you only a purpose which your normal missile can also serve because these are not going to penetrate your defenses. These are very short-range missiles. Hmm. So the offense-defense capability then becomes to what extent can you develop offensive capability? And that again goes to this another theory of can your military adopt that technology? Maybe it depends on two factors. The cost of maintaining that technology and innovating it and improving it. And next is how much stress it puts on your organization? Would it require this drastic change? Mm. AI, for example, how will that change your decision-making process in mm. your army? That would require drastic changes. Yeah. So your bureaucratic forces then come into play. Yeah. Will your politics trump technology? And that's always historically been the case because if it's just too much of a burden to take up our technology, then states will be like, no, I don't want it because it's going to create a lot of problems. Mm. But at the same time, you also have the security dimension, which the offensive defense theory says, which is that if you really face this threat, if you're really threatened by an offensive capability or a defensive capability, then you will have the urge to acquire that technology, which is what we see with nuclear weapons, not really with the US, but more of China, India and Pakistan and North Korea, right? So that's probably it. And for me, innovation in the military sense, in the revolution in military affairs, is again, uh, there's another layer added to it because after we saw AlphaGo beating Elise at all, this was innovation from the private side. Mm. And I, I know you know this, that in China, they started looking at this very seriously and yeah. they thought about, oh, how can we... And they thought that this was really revolutionary. So how much of your revolution is triggered by your privateers? Mm. So that's really fascinating for me. And some of the newer theories, they're calling it evolution in military affairs or the transformation in military affairs rather than a revolution. Yeah, I, I just just to pick up on that point, you know, uh, RMAs used to be very fashionable in the 90s to early 2000s. And then, you know, possibly as part of the regular academic churn as people come and challenge older ideas. But yeah. also, I think as a product of history, the fact that America got stuck in these forever wars, hmm. uh, RMAs uh, lost some of their salience and people start talk, talking about evolution. They started looking at other factors. But, you know, just to go back to what you said about offense and defense, one of the big uh, debates in any RMA is, does it privilege offense or does it privilege defense? Hmm. So, you know, people would tell you that in 1914, land forces were primarily found strength primarily in defense. And yet, you know, you have people, a political scientist like Jack Snyder uh, claiming that there was this cult of the offensive. I don't quite buy that argument. It's more complicated. But so the idea is basically that even though these armies' capabilities were pri- primarily defensive because of technology and organization at that time, they believed in offense. And mm. that caused a great deal of problems for them, really the catastrophe of the Western Front. And similarly, it was in the interwar period that suddenly maneuver came back. Yeah. You had uh, radio and armor. And... Uh, the French seemed to be prepared, however, in 1940 for a static firepower battle, but got outmaneuvered. Yeah, and this was because of Charles de Gaulle. He was actually called General Motors because he was so obsessed with the tank. And the French actually had a very nice tank back in 1915 itself. They had the Renault FT, which was very small, very mobile compared to what the British had, which was very bulky. So they started thinking about how do you think about more mobilized warfare? And then they had the tank armored core and you had theorists like Little Heart and uh, yeah, JFC Fuller. Well, what's really interesting about this is that the, the Germans didn't necessarily have the best tanks mm. in 1940. They just figured out how to use them best. Mm. You know, uh, you don't necessarily need, need to be the best innovator. You don't necessarily need to be the first one out. You, but you just need to figure out how to use and them. And innovation can sometimes run out of steam. Yeah. Blitzkrieg. Blitzkrieg just ran out of steam because yeah. they could not carry over that innovation. They thought... 
what worked in 1940 will continue to work in 1941 and russia the theory just the blitzkrieg theory just vanished because you were fighting in a completely different environment and you couldn't sustain your blitzkrieg without innovating that theory actually yeah. what's really interesting there is that simply uh, is technology diffusion and uh, not just technology d- diffusion but also diffusion of military ideas so uh, you know we tout these rma as a great deal but it doesn't take long for for others to learn yeah and catch up with you yeah Uh, see, so yeah, these are some of the I think common lessons that come out of most RMAs. Maybe these are some of those few things yeah. that they have in common while we try to make sense of them. Yeah. But but do the authors of this book address some of those challenges? So they don't necessarily address uh, any of these at the moment because they're essentially looking at their objective is to obviously look at what is China doing. Um, but they talk about some of so some of these strands get picked up. Okay, so in the framework that he's that they've offered is that they're talking about how does this innovation happen? What is the process of this innovation? So first you talk about say what are the inputs and the outputs that go into making this innovation? The inputs have to do with uh, your hard inputs, uh, which are you know your industrial base, so your capacity to sustain. the innovation like you mentioned in front of uh your private sector which will then feed into some of this stuff uh your r&d base which will then continue to maintain some of these things and then you come to your sort of softer side of things which again is something that you've referenced which is you know the political will political acknowledgement of you know the understanding of the environment and how the world is shaping and therefore then committing to doing some of these things um the ability of your armed forces to remain in charge as a consumer in some way where it can at least if not dictate then be partnering in what needs to be developed why where how so those are some of the bigger things that they look at now obviously broadly your governance processes for your industrial base if you're going to be protectionist if you're going to block things constantly particularly in an environment like today's where you know if you're doing ai innovation you can't be doing it at home you need to be collaborating across uh, different countries because you need to be learning from different people uh, algorithms are mostly open sourced so you need to be taking a lot of inputs from across the world and those sorts of governance protocols if you have in place it sort of facilitates how you innovate and when you do it so that's your hard and soft inputs and then they look at a balance between hard and soft inputs putting them on a 2 by 2 and they look at the process of innovation and they say that look there's a three stage process not necessarily linear uh they happen together in places they will not happen together in certain cases but it's essentially about uh speculation experimentation and implementation speculation entails where you're starting to look at what could be the possibilities of something new whether it's technology whether it's organizational uh, you start to discuss it you start to talk about it you do some research papers experimentation is when you start to put some of that into practice so you have some degree of war gaming based on some of those processes or some of those technologies you have some degree of uh, operational readjustments based on that organizational readjustments based on that and then you finally come to implementation where you start to actually implement based on your learnings and you may sort of create a new force a new unit you may create a new department you may invest in new technologies you may have a new strategy altogether so for example in the case of china the upgradation of civil military integration to civil military fusion and that is a national strategy now a step forward um it's not that the civilian sector and the military sector in china or anywhere in the world has never previously collaborated I and mean, of course they have um but the ability of your military and your armed forces to leverage developments in the civilian sectors in a systematic manner where you standardize a lot of things you standardize cars 
you sanitize roads, you sanitize, uh, you know, wheel structures, you sanitize things like shipbuilding. All those sorts of things then play a role in terms of whether the civilian sector can actually help you. And then, of course, things like AI, robotics, those sorts of things. You create certain standards by which you can be sort of cross-pollinating through the civilian and military uh, sectors. And that's the process by which some of this happens, which would then, then probably sustain some of these things. Because if as countries are unable to keep that up, you're going to no longer be able to continue. And your strategies also will need to then innovate. Yeah, one of the interesting things I want to pick up from what you said is about how they start this speculation. Sometimes they start speculating this and they realize that some other country has already had a solution for this. Yeah. And then they pick it up. Um, Aditya has written a lot about this, whereas Pakistan picked up in the 1960s and 1970s the doctrines of their tactical nuclear weapons. And that can lead to disastrous consequences because you're adopting a very old learning from some other country and you're putting it in a new context leads to disastrous consequences. This happened the same thing with India. When we first drafted our draft nuclear doctrine, we took a lot of bits from the NSC 68 document. But subsequently, we made changes. But uh, a lot of times, we, uh, you know, people in our countries tend to emulate and they take ideas from produced in different countries and it leads to very, very bad consequences. Mm. I think this can also happen with jointness. We try to emulate jointness based on what other countries are doing because if your country is a military structure, it may not really work the way you want to. So that's, yeah, that is interesting. And that is why uh, in, the, in the book, they talk about different outputs of innovations, right? So they classify them as different, right? So they classify different things. So there is a stage at which you are duplicating. There is a stage at which you are creatively imitating, so you're not really duplicating what's being done, but you're taking something, you know, I presume the Xiaomi phone is a creative imitation, but don't sue me for that. Then um, there is creative adaptation, which probably is where Xiaomi has then gone up to. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then there is things like architectural innovation where you're taking systems and structures. So jointness is something that you've said, and you're probably taking to look to adapt something that you've learned, but to your own conditions, you're innovating. And then you have component and modular and finally disruptive and radical innovation. Most people struggle with things like component and modular innovation. So, for example, if I've taken the design of a stealth US jet, uh, and if I've imitated that design, imitated the technology, imitated the materials, for then for me to make modular innovations or component innovations in that requires me to also have that technological know-how to how to do that. Uh, Because right now I'm just imitating. And that can become a challenge. And so in the case of China, they tell us uh, that that has been a challenge. And that is why some of these bigger things, sort of avionics, you've not seen China innovating because the basis doesn't exist. Uh, And you're imitating instead of innovating. And that imitation in itself is a form of innovation, but it's not at the level where you can actually become, you can actually challenge the leader. Uh, You can probably catch up in some ways, but the leader will always be the leader in that case. Um, But in the case of, say, AI, at least the Chinese believe that it gives them genuinely an opportunity to leapfrog the West. Uh, And the reason that they believe that is because uh, you've come to a point where this is new. You've got a very sizable private sector industrial base in this case. And you've got a consumer market which the private sector can leverage. You've got the opportunity to link with the private sector. There is no company in China which is going to stand like Google to the US government and say that we are not going to be working with you on military AI. So you can actually leverage this stuff and you can actually create new uh, ideas and create new concepts also apart from just new components and new weapons. Yeah, uh, This is one of the most comprehensive analysis that I've seen or structures that I've seen for thinking about uh, military change. It involves understanding how military innovation works. It understands that a lot of this is going to be cross-pollination from the civilian side, yeah. that it's going to involve doctrine and organization and political systems. 
are there things about Chinese Chinese thinking that are very specific and that might lead to very specific innovations that we might not see elsewhere? Ha ha! I don't know if they address that as yet because I've still not finished the book. But <laughs> I'm going to complete the book eventually and let you know. But from what my understanding is that uh, there is uh, a certain element of Chinese thought. So, for example, uh, Pranav, you mentioned uh, AlphaGo beating Lee Sedol. That sort of a process it led to a thought process which, for example, when you started to realize that you can leapfrog the West in something. It tells you also the fact that there is this deep insecurity about wanting to catch up first. And this deep insecurity, which then propels you to think of new ideas, new systems, new innovations. In terms of strategic thought, where Chinese innovation will essentially apply is, uh, if you go back to the game of Go, it's essentially a strategy game where you're looking to encircle your enemy and win without really fighting. Um, and that's the sort of broad strategic thought that emerges from Sun Tzu to go to wherever else you go. And the idea is that the Chinese would look at these systems to think of systems warfare, um, to look at uh, your ability to be able to deliver decapitating blows to the enemy's systems as opposed to necessarily manpower. So that the conflict doesn't progress or even if it then progresses, your enemy is blinded, your enemy is inefficient, your enemy is uncoordinated or it's or the systems are attacked. And that's been one of the sort of big conversations in China, particularly regarding AI. So their use of AI has much to do with, or at least their desire to use things like AI in military affairs has much to do with not just uh, efficiency, speed, effectiveness and those sorts of things, but about systems, integrating everything, thing, looking at things as a whole, as opposed to looking at atomic units of things, and then trying to see how can we apply it. So that is probably one thing which has become more prominent in the last few years, uh, particularly since that uh, AlphaGo, Lisidol game. And that's one of the conversations. If you read some, some of the discussions that happen in Chinese military uh, sort of conferences, this is constant talk about RMA, AI as an RMA. And Systems warfare. So we need to be looking not just as components of ground warfare, sea warfare, collect, blocking this, targeting this. But let's look at communication systems. Let's look at navigation systems. Let's look at organizational systems. And let's see how we can take them out and use technology to do that. Or even use technology to preserve our own systems and structures. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because uh, during the Cold War, they were only thinking about how do you destroy someone's military forces? How do you destroy someone's leadership? Which was the countervailing strategy and so on. But now they're actually thinking about the more nuanced things. What could really destroy your organizations? What could really cripple you without some key components? And I find that quite interesting. But to how much extent can that be implemented? We don't really know. Again, you know, it's it's only the China that has transformed since the 1970s that could think in this way. Yeah. The reason I asked you that question is that, uh, you know, Americans talk about the so-called A to AD strategy of China. Yeah. And now they have some other jargon for it. But uh, basically, that's what we would call a defensive yeah. strategy in the sense of you, you're trying to deny the enemy an ability to do something. So that to me seems to be at least very specific to their geography and their current state of, of capabilities, their development. But of course, you know, defensive capabilities are always can be aligned with offensive intent. So yeah. you can present fetter companies to your adversary and then have defensive capabilities that basically make the adversary either fight a losing battle or give up. Yeah, I mean, an example of this, I was recently reading, sorry to interrupt, but I was recently reading this, like, you know, there's a conflict in the Indian Ocean region. For the Chinese to say, let's assume that the Chinese have come in and they have managed to get a hold of the Andamans. For them to be able to deploy A to AD capacity in the Andamans, 
uh, would then cripple our our offensive capabilities completely, and it would be an offensive move by using what you said with defensive technologies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's Waterloo on in the water, <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, I've really enjoyed this discussion, and I suspect uh, military innovation and the future of war, the future of conflict, of future crises, is something that we're going to be engaged with a lot in Takshila. So look out for more. If you have a comment, uh, please leave one for us or reach out to us. You can reach out to me at uh, on Twitter at uh, adityar22. Manoj, I am uh, at the China Dude. I am Pran underscore RS. All right, wonderful. So, thank you, Pranav. Thank you, Manoj, and thank you for joining us on All Things Policy. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM Network. You can tune into them on the IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey. If you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashila inst or our website takshashila.org.in.